Reading from Mark 6 this morning. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who, had, who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony to them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of this, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Father, we do thank you that you are incredibly good. We're here today because of you, because you, you created us, you've blessed us with life, 
Now we have an opportunity just to experience your goodness, an opportunity to give back to you our love and our worship. And we thank you that we can do that in a powerful way through the way we sing and the way we pray and the way we listen to your word, but then most importantly, the, the way we live. God, you are all we need. And when you're all we have, you are truly at the heart of all we need. Today, we desperately need you, and we pray that we will open up our heart, open up our life to receive you in all of your fullness through your word. In Jesus' name now, we continue to celebrate. Amen. Amen. Once again, I just want to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Mark, <clears throat> chapter 6. Uh, we've heard it read this morning, and we want to continue to unpack it. Uh, six weeks after I graduated from high school, uh, I left my home in Baymanette, Alabama, and drove 475 miles to Furman University. Uh, Furman's in Greenville, as you know, in the upstate, and I began a brand new chapter in my life as I, as I looked in the rearview mirror that day and drove away from my hometown. I, I never knew the extent that life would never be the same again, and I mean never be the same again. I had signed a four-year grant-in-aid scholarship to play football at Furman and also to work on a college degree in preparation for ministry that I felt called to at that time in my life. No one in my immediate family had ever done that. No one in my immediate family had ever graduated from college, and I was excited about this new adventure. After that first semester, when the, when the football season was over and when the classwork and exams had ended, for the first time, I looked back at that time when I looked in the rearview mirror and I anticipated driving back home uh, to be back home again with my family and friends and, and neighbors. I distinctly remember two things about that drive back home. Number one, when I crossed over the, uh, the line from Georgia into Alabama, I got a speeding ticket. A big one. <laughs> I mean, a big one. I was in a hurry and I was anxious about getting home. And then after midnight that night, uh, after driving 465 miles, 10 miles to go to my home, I saw that sign on Interstate 65. It said, next exit, Baymanette. And when I saw that sign, all the emotion of my life just kind of burst like a dam bursting and the tears began to flow. I mean, I was a macho football player. I was a big shot. But I'm telling you, when I saw that sign, I don't know what it was about it, but my emotions just were overwhelmed. And I began just to spend that last 10 miles. I'm glad it was after midnight and everybody was asleep because I was just bawling like a baby as I headed for home. Uh, everywhere I went during that holiday season, for four weeks, everywhere I went, I was welcomed with open arms of people. I, I was engaging in conversations with people about uh, the, the classwork and the football season and all that had gone on in that, that previous semester. And it was quite an exhilarating experience to finally be able to go back home. In Mark chapter 6, 
we see a different kind of story from the life of Jesus. Remember, Jesus had just healed a woman from a bleeding disorder where she had been ostracized from all of community, all of fellowship with people for 12 long years. And an hour or so later, after healing that lady, he had raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead. Incredible ministry in Capernaum. And then after that, in chapter 6, Jesus led his disciples back to his hometown, back to Nazareth. And unfortunately, his return home was very different from mine. Jesus was rejected. Stiff-armed, so to speak, as he entered back into his hometown. I think you'll agree with me that rejection cuts deep into the soul. And so I want you to look as we walk back through this scripture passage at the impact that rejection had in the life of Jesus and in the life of some people around his life. I want to invite you to keep your Bible open as we work through this story recorded in Mark chapter 6 verses 1 to 29. You've heard it read, now let's go back through and unpack it. First of all, rejection by family and friends is painful. We see that in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. Now this was not the first time Jesus had been back to his hometown. Remember, in the first three chapters of Mark, we see where he had returned to his hometown. And just as earlier, he was rejected again. His life had been threatened that first time he visited back home. And remember, he had slipped out of town because the time had not arrived for him to die for the sins of the world. So now he returns again to give his family and his neighbors and his friends a second chance to believe. Isn't that the way Jesus works? He is the God of second chances. You may be here today and you may have heard Jesus calling you to open up your heart to him. You may have heard him call you to follow him and not only be a disciple of him, but be a disciple who makes disciples. And maybe for whatever reason, you've refused to do that. And today he's given you another chance. He's opening up his arms wide to tell you how much he loves you and how much he wants you to be one of his disciples who makes disciples of other people. Verse 2 says, On the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. So just like the first time, almost the same language, just like the first time he came back to his hometown of Nazareth, he was rejected. He began to teach. The people were amazed, they were astonished at what they heard, the Bible says. But unfortunately, their amazement, their astonishment quickly turned to rejection. Verse 2 says, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Now, 
their doubt raised up within them, and their doubt came from several sources. One of the major sources of their doubt came because of preconceived notions that they had. They were blind to who Jesus really was. They had watched him grow up, and they anticipated, they assumed, they presupposed that he was just like his other brothers and sisters. And they could not accept the fact that Jesus was a prophet, that Jesus was extraordinary, that Jesus was truly the Son of Man, and he truly was the Son of God. Verse 3 says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. In other words, they gave him the stiff arm. They rejected him. They would not accept him for who he was. Their reaction then squeezed that honest emotional response out of the Son of Man. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do nobody work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So we have the picture here. Jesus confirmed his self-identity as a prophet. Notice there, he said, a prophet is without honor except is with honor except in his own hometown. A prophet was one who stood between God and man and proclaimed the truth about the character and nature of the true and living God. And that's who Jesus was professing to be, a prophet. And Jesus was, in fact, the prophet of all prophets. A prophet was a man who condemned man's sinful heart and pleaded for all people to repent of the sin of rejecting God. And rather than rejecting God, turn to God and accept the love that, that God has to offer. And unfortunately, you see it right here before your eyes, his proclamation was met with rejection. And so he marveled in verse 6, the scripture says. He marveled at their unbelief. Last week in chapter 5, we saw in verse 36 a stark comparison to this episode in the life of Jesus. The report had come from a ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, that his 12-year-old daughter was dead. He had asked Jesus to come and heal his daughter, and in the process, Jesus paused long enough to heal this woman who had had a bleeding disorder for 12 years. And the messengers came to Jesus, came to Jairus and said, Don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. And what did Jesus do? He totally ignored the messengers. Totally ignored them. And in Mark chapter 5, look at it. In Mark chapter 5, in verse 36, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. See, the miracle of a dead girl being raised from the dead came through the faith of the, of the girl's father. 
The miracle of life rested solely in his belief. And today God is calling people to come to him. His arms are open wide saying, only believe. And if you will believe that the separation between God and man is caused by sin, your sin, and you will admit that you're a sinner, and repent of your sin, turn away from your sin, and come to Jesus through faith. Only believe. And you can have the same kind of faith restored as Jairus' daughter did. The miracle of the dead girl being raised from the dead came through the faith of the girl's father. The marvel of Jesus in chapter 6 and verse 6 was generated by the unbelief of people who should have believed. They saw the miracles. They saw the great work. They saw the love that he had for people. And yet Jesus marveled at their unbelief. So I pray today that you choose the miracle of belief and that you reject the temptation to reject the miracle of belief where you cause Jesus to marvel at your unbelief. Please don't fall into that trap. You can choose to refuse and you lose. You can choose to believe and you receive. And that's the most wonderful gift that the world has to offer. It's a gift so precious that when you receive it, you can't help but share it with others. Refuse Jesus and lose eternal forgiveness and eternal life. Repent of your sin of rejecting Jesus and believe in Jesus and receive God's merciful, gracious gift of salvation and eternal forgiveness and eternal life. So some believed and were healed. Now, Mark passes over that pretty quickly in verse 5. He said he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. If you were one of those sick people who, who were actually healed, that wouldn't be an insignificant thing, would it? I mean, there were actually people there who believed and were healed. But the majority of people there rejected Jesus his family, his friends, his hometown neighbors. And they hindered the ministry of Jesus in Nazareth. And so Jesus had to move on to other places. Understand that rejection by his hometown family and friends hindered the ministry of Jesus. But nothing, absolutely nothing, not even rejection, could stop the mission of Jesus. He was dead set on his mission of showing you and me and people of his generation who God is and what he's like and how much God loves you and how much God is willing to forgive and headed on to his mission to the cross and resurrection. Now for many, rejection takes the life right out of people. 
For many people, they are rejected by other people and feel rejected by everybody and everything, and it destroys their mission, but not Jesus. Jesus used rejection as a stepping stone. He moved on to greater places of ministry where people would be open to the gospel of forgiveness. Verse 6, so he went about among the villages teaching. Because his hometown rejected him, Jesus moved from Nazareth and began his traveling ministry. And that leads to the second thing about rejection. Rejecting the testimony of Jesus has a high cost. We see that in verses 7 to 13. Verse 7 says, He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money for their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Life in ministry is generally lived better in partnership. And there are many reasons for this. Jesus knew this, and that's why he didn't send his disciples out alone. He sent them out in pairs. Because he knew that along the way they were going to be rejected just like he was rejected. And rejection is better absorbed in partnership. So Jesus didn't send those disciples of his, those best closest followers of his out alone. He knew that they would often be rejected. He knew that they would need accountability. He knew that they needed a partner to share the victories and share the defeats with. He knew they needed witnesses to the work and power of God in their life, and so he sent them out with partners. Last week I had the blessed privilege that I have twice a year to meet with a, a, a band of brothers, we call ourselves the Cameo Group, where we meet together twice a, twice a year, and it was an encouraging week. We, we meet together to... Uh, encourage one another, to enrich one another, to challenge one another. And we've done this for over 25 years. We've met together a time or two a year. We laughed together, we cried together. Uh, one of our guys who had been married for 52 years nearly had his wife die last month. We spent hours this past week Grieving together, sharing together, sharing stories together, reminiscing together about our life through the last 25 years with Richard and Lori. One of the pastors in our group had a son almost two years ago commit suicide. And we continue to grieve and work through the process this little bracelet I have on my arm is a foundation that's been created on behalf of Philip Jr. And it has the phone number for a helpline to call so no person will be left alone and without hope if they're feeling suicidal thoughts. And we process through that together. We share together about how our churches love us and how we love our churches and how we share life together in community with, with our churches. God never meant for anyone to do life alone. 
And so when Jesus sent out his disciples, he, he sent them out in two by two. So they have, have community, they would have fellowship with one another. Here at Palmetto Shores, we offer you the opportunity to be in bridge groups. And I, I pray that if you're not involved in a bridge group, in a small group, a life group, that you'll get involved. Let Morgan or Todd or me know that you want to be in a group and let us help you find a group or create a group or make one so you can join in the process of, of doing life together with fellow believers to maybe help you come to faith or maybe help you strengthen your faith and have the courage to share your faith with other people as you experience life with Jesus in a in a genuine, real way. The model that Jesus set was one-on-one -on -one and one-on-some and one-on-many. Different occasions he ministered to his disciples in different ways. You and I need those same kinds of experiences in my life, in our life, because life will have challenges. There are going to be people who are going to laugh at you if you stand up for your faith in Christ. There are going to be people who will put you down. And say, who do you think you are preaching to me? Who do you think you are calling out sin in my life? And you need people to stand alongside you when those kinds of things happen. If you've never had anybody say that to you, that's because you've never shared your faith with somebody in hard places. And once you launch out into the adventure of knowing Jesus and following Him and beginning to make disciples who make disciples, you're going to be rejected. And that's when it's good to have people who can stand alongside of you and hold you up who've been there on the journey as you're on the journey. So Jesus prepared his closest friends to handle rejection. Look at verse 10. He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave... Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So once again, not every event in life is going to be victorious. And Jesus knew this. He was up front warning his disciples that this was going to happen. Rejection will always be a part of life. Always. And for too many people, it's paralyzing. It shuts down life for them. It's a major stumbling block. But Jesus wanted his disciples to manage rejection in a victorious manner. And so he gave them a process to use of shaking the dust off of their feet. Uh, that, that might mean a couple of things. First of all, rejection of Jesus by non-believers has a high cost. And when the dust is shaken off the feet of the one who is sharing the gospel... That might mean that it's the last chance that that person has to receive the gospel. That's serious business. That breaks my heart to think that somebody is going to make fun of Jesus and reject Jesus over and over so many times that God closes the door, like God closing the door on the ark and the flood. Rejecting gospel truth means that the rejecter spends eternity in hell. 
And it breaks my heart to even say that word. That means separation from God eternally. That's serious. The second thing shaking the dust off may mean is that when rejected, the, the sinner is not rejecting you, he's rejecting the gospel. He's rejecting God's only plan for the salvation of man. And as painful as that may feel for you, think about how painful it is for Jesus. They're rejecting their only hope for spending eternal life in relationship with their Creator and with the one who desperately wants to love them. But rejection must never stop believers from experiencing the victory of the ministry of the calling of repentance that Jesus calls believers to share. Look at verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. And so they moved on to greener pastures. They moved on to people who would be open to the gospel and listen to the gospel. So never let the fear of rejection stop the power of God from working in your life and flowing through your life. Never. You get rejected, move on to somewhere else. That leads to the third and final point this morning. Why do, why do people reject Jesus? Thirdly, rejecting Jesus is driven by unbelief. It's driven by unbelief. And it has very serious consequences. This is one of the saddest pictures that I could imagine in history. I can't hardly even read this story or think about this story. Again, without being overwhelmed with emotion. It's real. We're talking about a real man here who received the ultimate form of rejection. And yet, listen to the story beginning in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept himself safe. When he heard of him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he, talking about Herod, heard him great, gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, 
Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Now, how sad could a story be when his disciples heard of it? They came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So who was John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist, we, we saw John introduced in Mark chapter 1. John the Baptist was the first prophet to Israel for 400 years. God had shared his message with Israel for hundreds of years through, through the prophets. And Israelites would not listen. They had deaf ears to the prophets. And so there was 400 years of silence. And then God came back on the scene. And after 400 years, John the Baptist became the first prophet in 400 years to Israel. His life and his message fascinated the heart of King Herod. I mean, it grabbed his attention. It pricked his conscience. But it infuriated Herodias, the ill-gotten wife of Herod. Herod's heart was somewhat convicted, the scripture says, in verse 20, he heard him gladly. But Herodias' heart was hardened. She had a grudge against him. Because John the Baptist preached the truth to her, and it pricked her heart, and yet she hardened her heart. That's a dangerous thing. A dangerous thing to have a hardened heart. You hear the gospel over and over and you listen to it over and over and every time you hear it and reject it, your heart gets a little bit harder. And you hear it again and you reject it and your heart gets a little bit harder. Until sooner or later your heart becomes deaf to the heartbeat of God that's trying to break through and bring you to repentance. So she had a grudge to settle with John's message over his convicting message to her. And because of her hardness of heart, she rejected God, John's message, and she forfeited her chance for repentance. She forfeited her chance to be forgiven. Let, let me just say again, you never know when your last chance is going to be to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. 
The Bible says in Genesis that God's spirit will not always strive with man. There may come a time when your heart becomes so hardened that you can't hear the voice of God. And you fall into the same pattern of Herodias because her hardened heart led her to orchestrate the murder of God's prophet. Now, Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest man who's ever lived on earth. Luke chapter 7 and verse 28. And at a sinful whim of this very authoritative figure, his life ended on earth. But aren't you glad that that's not the end of the story? John the Baptist is celebrating in heaven with God today because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He gave his life to carry out the mission of God. And it doesn't matter what it costs you, even the ultimate form of rejection, it's worth it. Even if it costs you your life here on this earth, to be faithful to sharing the gospel that God has put in your life and put on your heart to share with other people. Herodias, on the other hand, will burn in hell forever. And my heart cringes to say that. But that's true of every person who rejects the gospel. You reject the gospel here on earth and you're going to be rejected in heaven for eternity. And you'll never spend eternity with God forever and ever and ever. You'll spend eternity in hell with the Herodiases and the Herods. It cost Herod his eternity when the peer pressure from other friends caused him to reject the message of the gospel that John the Baptist preached. The message of John brought conviction. But trying to impress friends and people under your authority and people around you by making drunken promises that you can't keep anyway. Herod, Herod couldn't give away half the kingdom because the half the kingdom wasn't his. <laughs> he was just a ruler in the province that included Israel. He didn't have anything to give away, but he made a rash promise that he couldn't keep in a drunken state that cost him his eternity. In a few weeks, we're going to here Jesus asked in Mark chapter 8, verses 36 through 38, when the transition in, God, in the gospel of Mark is moving away from uh, Jesus being identified as the Son of God to Jesus headed toward the cross and resurrection. Here's what it says in Mark 8, 36 to 38. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So you've got to make a choice. Are you going to reject Jesus here on this earth and be rejected for eternity from the kingdom of God? Or are you going to reject the peer pressure of this world and be 
received by God for eternity by receiving his forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ in your life here on this earth, regardless of what it costs, and spend eternity in heaven with your Creator. See, through history, many people have taken a stand for their faith in Jesus and ended up just like John the Baptist. They've entered heaven through the door of martyrdom. Now, that's the extreme picture of rejection, but it could happen. I pray it doesn't happen, but it could happen. But in Romans chapter 8, Verses 16 to 18, the Bible says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we might also be glorified with Him. Why do we think there's not going to be suffering for following Jesus and rejecting the world? When very God Himself, the Son of God, the Son of Man, was rejected while He was here on this earth. And sadly, rejection of Jesus comes at a very high cost. While gladly rejecting, receiving rejection for Jesus in this world comes at a high reward. Rejection of Jesus comes at the high cost of being separated from God here on this earth and for eternity. Rejection for and with Jesus comes at the highest reward of having life abundantly here on this earth and eternal life with Jesus. John and ultimately Jesus preached the beauty of the gospel of repentance. Have you experienced it? Have you experienced that repentance that John preached and that Jesus preached? I trust and pray that you have. Jesus paid your debt. We sang about it a few minutes ago. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus suffered by sacrificing his blood so that those who only believe can be received by the Father here on this earth and throughout eternity. Death couldn't hold Jesus in the grave. And when you accept him as your Savior, when you only believe, Death can't hold you either. It's only a transition from life on this earth to eternity with Jesus. So by way of application, let me just draw the net with two things today, and then we're going to celebrate communion. These three events, I call them chapters in the life of Jesus, teach us to do two things. Number one, Boldly identify with Jesus. That means even when it costs being rejected by the world, stand up for Jesus. Stand up for Jesus. Second thing is, when you receive Him, 
boldly witness for Jesus. See, standing strong through rejection is one of the highest privileges in life. Highest privileges. Now I want you to dial in with me for this last segment. In John chapter 13, verses 21 to 25, we have one of the most painful yet one of the most intimate pictures drawn in Scripture. Jesus was instituting the Last Supper with his 12 closest followers, his disciples, his apostles. And again, there's, there's no easy way to draw this picture. And if you will just stay with me and let God draw the picture in your mind and in your heart, It'll help us in this process this morning. See, 13 men were gathered around the table, and Middle Eastern culture, we have a hard time relating to that because we don't experience that in our culture, but, I mean, they literally were reclining at the table, sharing the Passover meal together. They were being reminded of God's great sacrifice of taking the children of Israel from being slaves in Egypt through the Red Sea into the Promised Land. They were experiencing that ritual together. And in John chapter 13 and verse 21, listen carefully to what God's word says. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Now this phrase, at Jesus' side, literally means, literally, reclining in the bosom of Jesus. I mean, he had his head up in the chest where he could hear the heartbeat of God, the troubled heartbeat of God. Jesus knew that he was soon to be rejected, and within 24 hours he would be tortured and hung on a cross. And John records his heart was beating fast. Now, that's the macro picture, that's the big picture. I want you to zoom in to the micro picture, the little picture. Picture yourself close enough to where you can hear God's heart beating. If you could just hear God's heart beating today, as we kicked off the service today, we shared that we want you to know God accepts you, God loves you. God has done everything He can to provide life for you. Picture yourself with your head in the chest of Jesus. Picture yourself not just eating the bread and drinking the cup. That's very significant. Very significant. But Judas did that. The one who betrayed Jesus did that. See, it's the heart that matters. 
And the heart of Jesus is beating for you and me today. The heart of Jesus is drawing you into an intimate position, an intimate relationship with Him. I want you to take that communion pack that's near you in your seat or around your seat. And I want you to do something very special today. We're wrapping up. We're wrapping up. But I don't want you to miss an opportunity here that John has painted for us in his picture as we draw close to Jesus. Would you take your communion cup like this and hold it right up close to your heart where you can feel your heart beating? Would you just bow your head and close your eyes and with me picture yourself with your head in the heart of Jesus. Your head on his bosom close enough to hear him say, I love you enough to give my life for you. When you are hurting, I want to comfort you. When you are rejoicing, I want to celebrate with you. When you are rejected, no one could identify with you more. Do you hear it? Do you feel it? Nazareth was the earthly hometown where Jesus was constantly being rejected. But that was not his home anyway. After the cross and resurrection, when he returned to his real home, the celebration of all celebrations broke out. My first semester in college was nothing compared to the homecoming of, of Jesus. So today, with your head bowed, and as you hold that communion cup close to your heart, please don't reject Jesus. Please don't miss the opportunity for your homecoming celebration. Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The gospel says Jesus came into his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become children of God, sons of God, daughters of God. Father, how I pray today as we open up this pack and eat the bread and drink the cup. God, how I pray that not one person would reject you today. That we would hear you calling us to move our heart right up next to your heart and let you pour life into us like we've never experienced before. And then do, if, do as you ask us to do as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup. Remember you until you come again. God, how I pray in Jesus' name that that would be the experience, the real experience of every person here today 
that not one person would reject you, but we would all gladly receive you. In Jesus' name now, we do what you've asked us to do and eat the bread and drink the cup. Amen.